Welcome to the U.S. National Privacy and Cybersecurity Podcast. My name is Jason Shoup, and I am the Executive Director of today's sponsor, the Association of Data and Cyber Governance. The association offers a discount on memberships for our podcast listeners when they go to www.adcg.org and use the code word POD. Today, we are led by our host, Jody Westby. We hope you enjoy the episode and don't forget to leave us a rating or a comment. This is Jody Westby, host of the ADCG National Privacy and Cybersecurity Podcast. Today, we are honored to have as our guest, Frank Jones, Vice President of Infrastructure and Information Security Officer for Aerial Investments, a leading investment advisory firm headquartered in Chicago with offices in New York, San Francisco, and Sydney, Australia. Ariel has more than 18 billion of assets under management. Frank is a seasoned information security officer with deep expertise in leveraging cloud infrastructure, enterprise applications, and security technologies to advance computing environments away from legacy systems and secure data and operations. Previously, he was an Antares Capital, former G, formerly GE Capital, a private debt equity manager and a leading provider of innovative financing and investment solutions for private equity-backed borrowers and investors. Working closely with the company's CIO, Mary Sokola, at Antares, Frank stood up a world-class cybersecurity program from scratch and supported the deployment of an entirely new IT environment, leveraging cloud environments, software as a service applications, and technology vendors. So welcome, Frank. You are the perfect guest for our topic today. Our discussion today focuses on the new proposed rules issued by the SEC for registered advisors and funds. But since the financial sector has historically had the strongest information security programs, It serves as a model for other sectors. So I think this discussion will be very useful for companies of all industry sectors. You've been in this space a long time. So let's start off by asking you to give us a bit of background on the current regulatory environment for investment advisory firms like Aerial Investments. And by that, I mean the current cybersecurity regulatory environment. Thanks for having me, Jody. It's a pleasure being here. As far as regulatory for cyber goes, we must comply with the recently amended rules and procedures of the National Security Clearing Corporation, or NSCC, that require members to periodically submit a quote-unquote cybersecurity confirmation, or like I say, an attestation to the NSCC, representing that their cyber risk program is aligned with industry best practices and guidelines, frameworks such as uh, ISO 27000, one of those standards that the NSCC recognizes, uh, but also they, um, they include NIST, obviously being a government entity, um, FFIEC, COVID, and, and a few others. Uh, we also have you know, regular examinations uh, by the SEC, the Office of Compliance and Inspection, uh, and examination issues requests for information regarding cybersecurity programs, uh, you know, broker dealers and, and investment advisors, plus the, the issue of you know, there's cybersecurity guidance back in, in April 2015. So they're heavily invested uh, in this, and it's also uh, regulatory we must meet. But also we have to comply with, with Reg SP, uh, which, as you know, is the SEC version of the Greenwich Pilot Act uh, for security and privacy. So quite a bit 
um, and I don't see them backing off anytime soon. Yeah, that's a lot. And here comes more, right? So you have a cybersecurity program aligned with best practices and standards plus examinations plus Reg SP. I'm curious, have you had an examination? And so what was that like? Do they really look under the hood? Well, we did have uh, examiners from the NSCC during their first year of, uh, of requiring a quote-unquote cyber confirmation. And I think that's just because our name starts with A. Uh, but the examiners uh, <laughs> had reached out several months in advance with a several-page-long questionnaire, uh, which they wrote up, in, for us to prep for, for the meeting. Um, so that was extremely helpful. Uh, most of that was around cyber risk framework, questions about you know, which one we chose, how do we implement it, things of that nature. You know, we had a meeting with them, uh, just reviewed you know, on screen our written responses and answering any questions they had and or providing clarification on, on context. So that one wasn't, wasn't too difficult, and they didn't go in too deep about that. However, we just completed an SEC discussion on you know, ProReg SP on securing our, our cloud uh, environment specifically. Um, this one was definitely more in-depth, um, and they asked questions very specific to our particular cloud platform. Hmm. Um, so that was that was a bit surprising that they went in that deep and asked specific questions to our, our particular environment. So they, they do go uh, pretty deep. Is this NSCC personnel that do these? The first one, the NSCC, was for sure NSCC personnel. The second one was, no, they were part of the, the SEC technical uh, auditing team. Uh, yeah, Office of OCIE, Office yeah. of Compliance and Investment yeah. Examinations or something. So that's everything now. But now let's look at this new layer that's that's coming. These proposed regulations, comments are out until April 11, I guess is the deadline for commenting. So can you give us a few highlights of the new proposed regulations and kind of what you're facing with them? Yeah, I see for, for starters, you know, which we do is, is being a broker dealer and, and most of the other institutions I've worked, you know, they're looking for written cyber policies and, and procedures. You know, and, and part of that they must address or include, um, you know, written cyber risk assessments, similar to what we just went through with the NSCC. Also controls for user-related risks that prevent unauthorized access. Uh, you know, the buzzword these days is least privilege. And then also threat and vulnerability management practices. I mean, this is an area that we've seen ramp up against smaller firms in, in recent years, uh, you know, trying to, you know, nefarious actors trying to exploit smaller smaller firms on the threat vulnerability side. And then also, are you any reviewing these uh, items and writing up reviews of these practices? And then also, are you presenting these to the board of director, as well as uh, approval for or approval of your cyber policies? at least annually. Um, and again, this is something that I've, I've done in, in the, the firms that I've been at, but you know, definitely good practice and also a good way to get more cyber awareness at the senior level, at the board level, and, and probably a good way to get some funding too. Um, so you so have, let, me, let me interrupt you just one yeah. second. So the policies and procedures, you have to do those and the board has to approve those, but you also have to write this written report annually. And then they tell you the certain things that have to be in the report, and then the board has to review that as well. Is that right? Correct. Yep. They want a review of not just your several policies, uh, but also this annual written assessment you've uh, you've done. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Go on. 
and you know the next the next part is is really the disclosure part and that you know understandably raised a lot of people's hair and i'm sure we'll get into a bit more detail later but uh, you know prompt and as they say but no more than 48 hours post incident um confidential reporting to the sec uh, public disclosure of quote unquote a significant cyber incidents from the past two fiscal years on brochures and registration statements uh, and then also prompt delivery of material changes to your ADV um, and cybersecurity disclosures to all of uh, your advisors, all of the advisors' customers. Mm-hmm. So the, the reporting part is is the, the, I guess, the topic of conversation. Yeah, it makes some sense because, I mean, if you imagine you're an executive over thousands of, of business units, you're going to want consistent reporting on certain sections and and with thousands of companies sending up reports that are all looking like whatever they think they should look like, that also doesn't allow for a very good comparison. So I can understand why they're starting to tell people what to put in, in reports. Yeah, and um, today it's it's data, right? And you be able to mine and make any intelligence out of that data it has to be in a standardized format. So um, you know I, I get it too. The argument is is there is you know, against yeah. it as well, because you have to comply with something else, just something else you have to comply to. But I get that it makes, makes a lot of sense. So there's really nothing in that list beyond what a normal cybersecurity program should contain, except the specific reporting requirement on the significant incidents. I mentioned comments are open until April 11. Have you heard much comment in the industry about these proposed regs? Are people generally viewing this as a positive step? Or are there rumblings there's too much regulatory interference in, in operations? Uh, rumblings is a, is a good way to put it. There have been mixed emotions. You know, understand how this could be positive, but could also be, be a burden. Um, it's yeah. part of one committee I participated in. There was a uh, spirited debate, shall we say, specifically around the reporting requirements. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, look, when, when the heat of an incident response, the last thing you want hanging over your head is, is a ticking clock. Yeah. Then you also have, you know, in my mind, you just when do I involve my my chief compliance officer, my my general counsel, because they now have reporting and disclosure obligations, and now am I more reluctant to get them involved sooner due to the reporting obligation? You know, although the proposed language is, you know, prompt but a no event more than forty hours after having reasonable basis to conclude a significant incident has occurred, you know, so taking the the fear and the emotional part out of it. If you read what they're saying is it doesn't mean the moment you have an incident or you start an investigation, you start ticking the clock. It's more or less when you realize, you understand you do have a, an incident, then that clock, the clock starts. Um, but I think that the fear around that was that practice or, or that disclosure will then be used as a hammer to then ask you why and when did you choose to disclose when you did. Versus just saying, "Hey, we're actually disclosing this now." Right. Um, you know, so yeah. another point of view that was was brought up was, you know, as practitioners, we don't want a regulation that prescribes you know, how to secure an environment or during what events you have to disclose, because in, in our eyes, would give a nefarious actor essentially a playbook on when or how to attack an investment advisor firm. You know, if I had to disclose, for example, that I had a malware attack and it happened you know, X number of days ago or whatever, or within 48 hours, you know that it's happened or I've disclosed that it's happened. And if you have thousands of endpoints to secure and update, that could take a lot of time. 
And if I'm a savvy, nefarious actor looking at, say, something like Form ADB-C or a publication in a public disclosure, I'm looking at like a bulletin board of who's on deck for me to attack. So there's, there's that point of view, too. Yeah, because you don't, I mean, in some cases, especially a large organization, and with stealthy malware, you could find out it's there, but you may need to take some steps to secure your environment. Law enforcement may advise you not to do anything for right away because you tip off the bad guy. But it's a balance because obviously the SEC is wanting investors to be aware as soon as possible. So that's the rub is getting the most current information to someone that's going to spend money on a, uh, with a company or especially with an investment advisory firm where they may have a, a large piece of their assets managed by that company. But it is very hard in a forensic investigation in 48 hours to determine exactly what happened. Just the log analysis and gathering all the data and sorting out the pieces. And so, you know, the SEC has come down on Elon Musk about stirring up the markets and some, you know, in my view, putting some information out there too soon that could be rather hairy might stir up the market unnecessarily. But this may be an area where I would expect there will be quite a few comments turned in and perhaps this will get uh, reworked a little bit. We'll see. But let me ask you, do you think that investment advisory firms are in a better position to meet this requirement than other businesses? Or is that just something that companies are going to have to figure out the best path for compliance? You know, having, having been in manufacturing and, and healthcare and now in financial services, in my experience, the investment advisory area has been in a better position. But that's due to the nature of you know what they're protecting. And typically in financial services firms or specifically investment advisor firms, you have a tightly woven stack of operations practices where many areas of the, of the business are, are codependent on each other, as well as that underlying technology stack to uh, for the functioning of the firm. Um, you know, portfolio managers and traders and traders and operations and operations and compliance and, and things like that, where, you know, it's it's not just somebody clicking a button and they're done, they can walk away. There's a lot of other departments involved in executing a, a transaction. So they, unlike, you know, other verticals where parts of a firm can be and do function independent from one another, again, whether purposely designed or, or just the nature of how that, that business functions, you know, they, they may not have looked at something like this where they have to be in a position to do this. Then you, you balance that with you know, examples like the, the beginning of the pandemic where healthcare organizations were targeted by ransomware, you know, disgustingly, and taking advantage of, of a rock and a hard place, literally, where you had to pay it because you needed those electronic records back. But that didn't stop doctors and nurses from doing, you know, the, the heroic, heroic things that they had to do to treat patients. Mm-hmm. Um, then you look at critical infrastructure like colonial pipeline, as well as, you know, let's not forget solar winds. So it's not just financial services, but it's, you know, I think every vertical now is on the playing field for nefarious actors to go after. But, you know, just to summarize it, in my experience, I, I do believe investment advisors are in a better position, again, just due to the nature of how those businesses function, but also having been exposed to the regulatory environment for a longer amount of time. Um, having having to comply with these things. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that. Especially 
especially large corporations that are conglomerates and do different types of businesses or have complete different business units that are unrelated. Malware doesn't know the difference. It just spreads through a network. So it it can get everyone and, and they're not as coordinated. It doesn't care who you are. Yeah. No, it doesn't. But it's nice to know businesses do have an advantage. At least a few of you do. So SEC Chair Gary Gensler has been busy since he's been in his position and he's been vocal on the topic of cybersecurity. And in fact, he gave a talk recently that was industry-wide and highly publicized. I, I think you listened to this talk, didn't you? Do you think that this has helped raise awareness among senior management to cybersecurity? And do you think it'll make the funding for cybersecurity programs easier to obtain? I did listen to the talk. And, you know, I appreciate what the chair has been doing about raising awareness for this. You know, and, and I do hope it did raise awareness outside of the cyber fishbowl. You know, internally, we did debrief. And, and since we already have an investment at Ariel in cyber throughout the firm, uh, it was more along the lines of, yep, makes a lot of sense, about time. Um, you know, however, there was some concern um, by my peers who are outside of IT about the reporting requirements because that impacts them too. Um, but they did like how it offered some transparency to a topic that is typically very opaque to those outside of outside of cyber. Uh, but they did empathize with with my position on that. But this isn't new, right? I mean, the, the first documented hack was back in the 1830s by two brothers in France who bribed a telegraph operator to tip them off uh, to the direction of the market, you know, so they could get an advantage over investors who were waiting on that mail coach to arrive from Paris. So again, not, not anything new, uh, which is, you know, let's say funny, but not funny. But, you know, even outside of Ariel itself, you know, reaching out to, to my peers in the community, several who are in the investment advisor area, I'll basically had similar comments. You know, they, they hope that this reinforces what they've been preaching to senior management about investing in cyber. And, uh, you know, it's, it's the importance of it it's the entire firm that, that has to be behind this. And it's not just specifically to, you know, one area of the firm. Right. I don't want to close this interesting conversation without looping back to your introduction and unique background in standing up new infrastructure and cybersecurity programs from scratch in the middle of operations and the digital transformation that you're working on now at, at Ariel. I'm convinced that your approach is the new path. I just don't see that it makes sense for companies to continue to try to cobble together fixes to keep old legacy systems running and to bear the risk of patched and out of support equipment or software or try to manage the security risks associated with all these environments, much less try to have the personnel to do all that. Clouds and vendors are the future, especially in light of the shortage of, of the qualified IT and security personnel. You can't run your IT operations without having the trained personnel. You just can't. So we can talk about security all day and new regulations can be imposed every month. But at the end of the day, these old programs are just too risky for companies to keep going. Are you seeing other companies kind of taking some of the steps or steps even partially close to what you and Mary Sokola did at Antares and what you're doing now in Ariel, where you're throwing out the old junk and moving to a whole new modern platform and, and approach? Do you see other companies doing that? And if so, what do you think are the top one or two steps that you should do? Yeah, for, for sure. We, we see this happening more and more. 
across the industry. And, you know, just, it makes a lot of sense, um, the scalability that you get with, with cloud, you know, as well as the, the investments career they're doing. You know, and I agree, Castle and Moat is, is the past type of security. Identity is the, the future of, of security. And the first, you know, major step, I think, is more operational and, and political. You know, I always like to give a, an antidote. My former CEO at Interi's was telling the firm about while we're doing this transformation, you know, it's uh, to those outside of IT, and I thought this was kind of brilliant, was, you know, imagine you're in a plane, you're in a big 747, and that's the business. The business is running, it's smooth, and it's flying, uh, but IT is changing out the guts, changing out the engines mid-flight, and you don't know it. So having buy-in from the top, the board of directors, the C-suite, and even across the firm is crucial because cyber, it takes a village. Um, it's going to be expensive uh, to implement the right way. But uh, having that financial as well as strategic backing is, is crucial to adoption uh, and implementation. Secondly is, you know, the, the operating part of it, but also the technical stack. Now, not all security products are, are created the same. And uh, I give Mary total credit for this. It was, you know, around if you're going into an organization where, you know, you're going to do a digital transformation or even from scratch, like you have to keep it running. So you have to have people focused on operations and keeping things running and running as smooth as possible while you have this you know, skunk works type of team in the background uh, helping build um, these products and capabilities and integrating it into daily operations because security can't can't be an afterthought of IT, right? It has to be woven into the fabric uh, of IT and delivery and IT operations. So you know you need to have a staff that's security minded. You have to have training for that staff to to ensure that um, you're secure as as you build and as you go. Like you can't have a developer who's brilliant, but then opens an API to the world with no authentication because that's nothing bad that could ever come of that. But you know, also choosing the right the right cloud and, and technical stack. I say this at every risk committee and, and board of director presentation I get or I give about cloud providers and their annual investment in, in cyber and how critical it is, and we need to leverage that scale because we can never invest that much to match it. So, you know, and lastly, part of part of that whole stack is, is also the vendor management piece. Um, and as you go to SaaS and, and third-party, you know, managing those vendors, the risks of the vendors um, and, you know, doing due diligence on them, risk assessments on them is, is critical as well. So, yeah. And integrating them, all of those vendors, into your own incident response plan. So, that, yeah. so that when something happens, you're team knows where to get logs and who has what and how to interact with the vendors. I think a lot of companies forget that step. Yeah, I remember um, an SEC auditor um, last year asking us about uh, fourth-party vendor due diligence. And I was like, what is fourth-party? I don't understand that. (laughs) Uh, Which is your vendor's vendors. And how are you doing due diligence on them? Uh, They said they weren't requiring it yet, but it was one of those topics that was topic of conversation. I mean, it makes makes double sense. You look at solar winds. You know, it's a third party, but then do they outsource some parts of their, their application or development of the application, right? And who's, you know, managing the, the due diligence or the, the risk on them? So, as you mentioned, it's it's going to become critical as you go and, and uh, you know, know who, who's all in the party when it comes in some response. And, uh, you know, what, what are you looking for? Where are you getting it from? And who can you call when, uh, when something happens? Yeah. It's an ever-changing field that we all have to keep up with. And now the regulators are ensuring that we all have more to do. But I think it's moving things in the right direction. I'm sort of 
over believing companies are going to do this by themselves. They've had a decade and they haven't done it. So the regulators are, are going to do it. And financial industries, you know, are always the first, but it's good because you guys are the best. And so I think this is just a beginning. We'll have future programs discussing about SEC cybersecurity proposed regulations for all public companies. But I think focusing and starting on this one, looking at what they're proposed for investment advisory firms is a great place to start with this conversation. So thank you so much, Frank, for giving us your time and being with us today and sharing your expertise. Well, thanks so much for the opportunity. It's a pleasure. Thank you for joining us this week on the U.S. National Privacy and Cybersecurity Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed today's podcast and want more content about the issues we've covered, you can visit www.adcg.org. The Association for Data and Cyber Governance is the leading association connecting all aspects of data management, cybersecurity, and governance. Our listeners can use the code POD at checkout for a discount on all memberships. Thank you for listening, and we hope you will join us next week.